we're all used to the tech. We assume it's going to work. The reality is, is what is coming out of it and how valuable is that to me as a consumer or me as a business? That's, in my mind, what causes most IoT projects to fail because people think it's a tech thing. It's not this. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT connected devices and the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today we're joined by Paul Glenn, CEO of Davra, and we're going to be talking about, forget about proof of concept, let's talk about proof of value. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. So for those that don't know, give us 30 seconds on Davra. What are you guys up to? Okay, so we are an Irish company headquartered in Dublin, although we have offices in the US, the UK, Italy, Dubai, and I'm actually in the process right now of opening in Canada, Brazil, and Australia. So we have a pretty global reach. We are a full-stack industrial IoT platform. So we're typically working with organizations who are looking to connect assets they've never connected before. Buses, trucks, trains, ATMs, vending machines, sensors and oil and gas pipelines, sensors and hospital beds, sensors and mining environments, really any range of assets. They want to connect those assets so so they can collect data from them and then turn that data into some form of usable business intelligence, which is where our platform comes in. So we're the the secret sauce in the middle that takes the raw data and turns it into information that can be used and reacted to. I was going through your background before we had you on the show, and one of the things that jumped out that I wanted to call out or ask about, my first computer was a Commodore 64. It looks like, if I've got this right, you started your career at Commodore. Do I have that right? Yeah, my very, very first job was junior, junior, junior sales guy in Commodore back in the early 90s. Technically, I was employed by their Irish distributor, but I was part of the Commodore team. Yeah, it was good. Good days. You say junior, junior sales guy. What did it look like to be, you know, tech sales has gone through this gigantic transformation. And of course, tech sales is the career path that, that I was, uh, that I started my journey on as well. What did it look like as a tech sales guy selling Commodore computers back in the day? It's a funny space because Commodore, although they were around from the late 50s, and they were always making these sort of, well, they were technically a business computing organization, but everyone who knows Commodore, exactly as you've said, you remember the Commodore 64. People remember the Commodore Amiga. They remember the Amiga 600, the 1200. Commodore were a gaming company. They were not a computing company. And I think that was probably a little bit of what led to their downfall was there was there was a schizophrenia in, uh, in Commodore because my side of the business was gaming. Okay, we were selling to toy shops in our biggest month of the year was December. The other side of what was regarded as the core business, Commodore Business Machines, was very much a business-focused PC manufacturer and, and, and reseller. And that was in the days, it was in the heyday of, of, of PCs. Like This was the, the mid-80s, early 90s. The, the Windows had just been launched. These were the days where you had Compact, Dell. It was a massively like, competitive environment. So you had the big guys, the Compacts, the Dells, the IBMs, the, the Dex, the Gateways, like the, all these brands that just blew Commodore away. And Commodore were out there trying to sell games on one side and sell PCs on the other. So it was tough for them. And, and the 90s were not good. The 80s were 
absolute heyday for Commodore. 90s, not so good. And they went out of business in 95. But from, I suppose, from my perspective, I had a good buddy who worked for IBM. And she told me that when she came up against Commodore in a bid, in a deal with a client, she was sort of joking, referred to them as, oh, the games people. Yeah, you're going to buy one of those games things. So it was always really difficult for them to compete in both worlds. No one knew where to put them. But C64 and Amigas were great machines. Amazing. Okay, so we're off topic, and I'm going to take us a little bit more off topic because I wasn't expecting you to say, I've not done my homework on Commodore outside of owning one as my first machine as a young man. I don't know that much about the, but you, I was really surprised to hear you say they were founded in the 50s. We focus a lot on this show on product market fit, and the Commodore 64, in a way, was like tech's, one of tech's first product market fit super hits. You know, a lot of people... So you talked about the schizophrenia of computing and gaming and the, you know, the tension between those two businesses. And it sounds like Commodore did not last very much longer after the mega hit Commodore 64. How were they able to achieve such enormous success with one product, but, but what seems to be relatively modest success leading up to it, and then you know, I don't know, mixed or not success after. How, how did that, in that one moment in time, they had the world by the tail? You see, this is the whole thing. It was, it was a fantastic piece of marketing. Refer to, you said this was my first computer, right? I can almost guarantee you, you bought that computer because you wanted to play Bubble Bubble or, or you wanted to play Jet Set Willy or Mike. You wanted to play, you want to buy it for games. But you went to your mom and you said, hey, mom, I'd like a computer for Christmas. And she's thinking, oh, computer. And she's reading about Bill Gates. And she's thinking, this is the future. And she has visions of you learning the program. And she has visions of you doing the family taxes on your C64. Because that's the way it was advertised. But all you want to do is play games. So if you'd gone and you'd asked for an Atari 2600 or you'd asked for a Sega Mega Drive, she'd probably go, oh, Ryan, they're a bit expensive. But she was in. She bought into it because you were getting a computer. In your world, that's not what you wanted. You wanted to play games. But that was what Commodore did really, really well. They managed to convince the people who were paying for the games machine that it was not a games machine. And they were investing in their children and in their children's future. And computers were the next big thing. And Bill Gates was on every TV show. And he was this young, hot whiz kid. And that's what they saw. Whereas, really, that's not what you wanted to buy. And I would think, although a lot of people today will refer back and people, particularly coders, we've got, we've got a lot of older coders working for us, people who are with us a long, long time. And they all started on a C64 or maybe a, a lot of the European ones would have started on a, on a ZX Spectrum. But the reality is 99% of people who bought those bought them for games. So that, that, that was the brilliance of Commodore. But unfortunately, they couldn't compete in their core business area, which was business computers, because the games bit became a bit of a joke. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like the root of their success is they were giving both stakeholders what they wanted. Mom got maybe the illusion of an education machine. They're going to learn to program. They're going to learn about computers. And the, the kid got the gaming platform. I remember gaming on a Commodore, very basic games, floppy drive, no internal hard drive, if I recall correctly. Well, the, the 64 not only had no internal hard drive, it also had no floppy. You loaded your tapes. You loaded against your tapes. That was a Commodore 64. The Amiga had a floppy drive with no internal hard drive, and the Amiga 1200, which was the second model, had an internal hard drive. I think it was 128 megs. But the, the C64, the original one, had 64K of memory and no hard drive. So 
Different, different world, Brian. Different world. Amazing. All right. So at the time of recording, as we sit here, it's July of 2022. Stranger Things season four has just been released. So a little bit of like memory lane nostalgia felt required for our first episode coming out of our summer hiatus. So Paul, I appreciate you letting me talk about totally unrelated topics for the first five minutes of the episode. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually a great example of a tech company that sort of lost their way. And, uh, and that's, it happens so often. So yeah, it's a good way to start. So, Paul, just a an unrelated but anecdotal, I guess, observation. It feels like BlackBerry was the next Commodore. You know, like so, so you, the next company that I can think of that seemed to almost accidentally stumble on a gigantic market lead in a really important area. So, younger listeners will maybe not recall that the iPhone has not always been the market leader. BlackBerry had a gigantic lead in what is now called the smartphone space, but they, I think they had over 80% market share or maybe more and they didn't innovate at all. And then by the time Steve Jobs got a hold of the marketplace, it was already over. RIM, BlackBerry's parent company is called RIM, Research in Motion. But it seemed like by the time they realized there was a competition, the competition was already over. From your vantage point, as someone who's been in tech, did it look and feel similar to you at all with the Commodore situation? It was a little different because nobody saw the iPhone coming. If you look, yeah, you had BlackBerry, RIM, you had Nokia, Sony made a lot of phones in those days. And you talk about smartphones, they were smarter phones. Okay, we we, we had a conversation recently, Ryan, about smart cities versus smarter cities, and it's something similar. Like the BlackBerry was a smarter phone than your traditional uh, Nokia, and your Nokia was a smarter phone than the one before it, but. Apple just came out of nowhere. When Jobs stood up on that stage and said, hey, we have an iPod here that's got a phone built in and it's got internet built in, the world changed. So actually, there's no one left from those days. Nokia sort of made a bit of a comeback, I suppose. They were, hey, they're 120-year-old company, so they never went away and they've, they're they back making handsets. But the reality is what Jobs did and what Apple did with the iPhone just revolutionized that industry. So I think RIM get a bit of a hard time about losing that lead. And Nokia, certainly from a European perspective, get a hard time about losing that lead. But that was complete disruption of an industry. No one could survive that. Bezos did it with Amazon. He disrupted, disrupted so many industries. Sometimes that happens in industry and it has to be torn down and restarted. If you look at all the big uh, handset manufacturers today, I don't know if any of them or certainly very few of them existed pre the iPhone. They've all come and mimicked the iPhone and done it cheaper or done it slightly differently or done it with certain areas of expertise that they just focus on. But no one really who existed pre-iPhone still exists in any meaningful way. So that's a little different. That's a little different. So this is a great segue. Now we're 11 minutes and 45 seconds in. Let's actually begin the interview. So the yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I have talked with you about before, you know, I love to ask people about the wrong side of impossible. And your take was, hey, look, proof of concepts in IoT are, it's the wrong thing to be focused on. A lot of these things are technically extremely solvable or have been solved. This is about proof of value. And it feels like this is history repeating itself a, l- a little bit. Can you talk about your view on proof of value versus proof of concept? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I love your wrong side of the impossible question, and I'm always intrigued by how people will take it. But 
in our world, in the world of IoT, I think a lot of people, people have this idea that first to market in tech will always win. Whoever's in the door first does it first. They're the market leader. Everyone else is playing catch up. And that wasn't the case with IoT. IoT is not a technology play. Okay. I, I argue sometimes, and my marketing people hate this. I argue sometimes that there's no such thing as IoT. Okay. IoT means something very different to a manufacturing operational lead than it does to a person responsible for managing a fleet of vehicles for a city. Okay. They're both in IoT positions, they were talking about IoT. They probably talked to their friends and they asked them what they do. Oh, yeah, I'm in IoT. But they're very, very different things. So in the IoT industry, a lot of the companies who came out of the blocks very early are gone because they couldn't prove the value of what they did. The technology has always worked. It is very rare that a proof of concept fails. You want to connect some assets. You want to collect data from that asset. You want to do smart things with that assets. The tech is rarely the problem. It's how you actually take that raw data and manipulate it and analyze it and present it in such a way that your people within your organization or systems within your organization can consume it and react to it and make your business better. They might be driving efficiencies. They may be increasing profitability. They may be looking at creating whole new business models. But it is not about the technology and has never been about the technology. So that's something a lot of companies have struggled with. People come out and think, oh, we do it faster or we do it cheaper or we do it and it's all about how speeds and feeds and if you get into a technical conversation with a customer you're lost you need to understand their business you need to understand their business problems and you need to understand how to leverage technology to solve them but it's not about the technology technology shouldn't matter actually we're all so used to having apps on our cell phones and living our lives with our watches or connected with all this we're all used to the tech we assume it's going to work the reality is, is what is coming out of it and how valuable is that to me as a consumer or me as a business? That's, in my mind, what causes most IoT projects to fail because people think it's a tech thing. It's never this. So, Paul, this is something that you, in my conversations with you, I could tell that this is kind of baked into you guys' approach. Can you talk about, like, take us from the theoretical, you know, so like what you just walked us through and how that's kind of baked into how you approach it uh, as a corporation? Okay, well, I suppose, again, what would make Davra different is that we're a tech company, absolutely. We're an IoT platform. Most of our staff are software developers. They're writing code. They're building out our core technology. But we also have metrologists, meteorologists on our, on our payroll. We have a hydrologist. We have a geoscientist. We have a rail engineer. Okay, so we have people who understand the industries we're engaging in. Those people will work with the customers. They'll figure out the root of the customer problems in a real world. Forget about the technology. They'll then come back and they can translate it back to our tech guys to help build out the correct applications. But that's what proper customer engagement is. About. That's what drives real relationships. And it means we have a very low churn rate with our customers because we work with the city of San Diego and we've worked with them for six or seven years now. We started building a very specific, very niche project for them. And slowly but surely, they've just adopted us into more and more areas of, of their transportation infrastructure. So a huge amount of the transportation infrastructure there is now built on our platform because we know their world. We understand their problems because we have people on our team who do that. And then they can translate it back to our, our engineering resource who builds the application accordingly. So that's where our industry is. It's that, I suppose, bridge between IT people, technology people, and OT people, operational people. And it's a bit of a cliche to talk, say that IT and OT or like IT are from Venus and OT are from Mars or whatever, whatever these jokes you hear. But 
But the reality is they do talk different languages, they operate in different environments, they operate to different timescales, and then they have different priorities. So you need to have people who understand the operational problems of your client. That's in our world what makes a successful project. So drilling down a little further, like some of these specific individual contributors on your team, I think audience may be surprised by this. I think this is different than how others approach it. What are some specific use cases of problems that you guys are solving taking this approach? So we work with some pretty significant automotive companies. One of our clients came to us with a problem. They have issues on the manufacturing floor. They elements of downtime. Now it's minuscule. It was like 28 minutes in a, in a month. So very, very small amounts of downtime, but 28 minutes in the automotive world, when you're talking probably forty to $50,000 a minute is a big issue, okay? So we worked with them to collect pretty significant amounts of data. Most of the problems, the averages were called by network issues. So we were looking at network data. Rather than actual data, but the machinery itself, we were looking at network data on the factory floor. We were analyzing that over periods of time. We were running a predictive uh, modeling against it, and we were able to to basically preempt problems by up to seven hours. So by looking at what was going on, analyzing that data, modeling it against previous outages, we were able to say, we were to alert them roughly seven hours in advance of when we felt the problem was going to happen. And our accuracy rate was up in the early 90s, which is really impressive. Now, the reality was we were then creating an alert, an event to say, hey, guys, we think something is going to happen in about seven hours' time. In the real world, someone who's really busy trying to run a manufacturing floor gets an alert to say they, we think something is going to happen, and nothing gets done. When the factory floor fall, or factory uh, line, the production line falls over, everyone is in a panic, everyone is focused. But a, hey, this might happen, doesn't get the same level of detail, level, level of focus. So we actually had to build integrations into Cisco WebEx. So WebEx is a, is a, is a collaboration tool. So we were able to build integrations in that when we realized there was going to be a problem, we created a WebEx team session. We invited all the stakeholders for that asset. We gave them all the information we were using to make our prediction. And we gave them all the historical information that the previous two, three, ten times this issue had occurred and brought down the lines. So suddenly you have accountability. This is in the real world. Someone is now accountable because they have been told this is going to go up. They've been giving all the de- given all the detail they need. And if they don't react to it, now we have an issue. Okay, so by actually understanding the day-to-day operational issues, we were able to say, you know what? Unless we really get their attention, unless we get multiple people together, tell them they have an issue. So predicting your problem was the most technically difficult part of it, but it wasn't a problem. It's just a model. We data scientists to figure out all that. Actually, getting someone to react to it, deal with it before it became an issue, that was the business problem the customer was trying to deal. With. That was how you reduce their downtime. So it's complicated around, there's a lot to it, but you have to understand people and you have to understand people's, I suppose, thought process and how they're working on a day-to-day basis to make the technology actually valuable or what the technology is giving them actually valuable. All right, a little bit of a twist follow-up question. So, you know, we've talked about Davra being big believers in proof of value, and I, I share that. I look across IoT and I see an industry maybe not as laser focused on that as they could or should be. I think there's a lot of what I would characterize as neat projects, you know, that are technically possible, but I don't know that the value has really been demonstrated. You know, they're, they're from where you guys sit, you know, let's pick a fight out there. What's an example 
of a technology or two that you're looking at and saying, I don't think they ran a proof of value exercise here. Like they ran a proof of concept exercise to prove that the thing is technically possible. But I, I, Paul, don't see the business value. Can you give an example or two of something like that? Yeah, okay. I'm going to take you on a left turn as well. And I'm going to say there is no IoT technology that I've seen that doesn't have a value to somebody. That's an issue. So the logical one, the one that everybody jumps on is connected refrigerators. Who the hell needs a connected refrigerator? It's a whole a lot of hype around connected refrigerators in the early days. It was just plain dumb. No one really needs to look at the amount of milk they have in their fridge when they're at the store. For a long time, this was held up as a really interesting use case for IoT. Now, so I, don't, I personally see no value in that in, in a home environment. But if I work in the pharmaceutical world or if I work in retail, then connected refrigeration is really interesting. Actually understanding my stock levels or understanding the temperature levels in a fridge to minute levels of variation, it could be really, really important to my business, to my organization, to my the, the productivity and profitability of my, of my company. So I think it really comes down, again, it comes back to value and value is in the eye of the beholder or whatever beauty is in the eye of the beholder, uh, that different things will offer different levels of value to different people. If you go in thinking everyone wants a connected fridge, well, then you're wasting your time. But if you can pick and you understand the business problems that people have, you will very quickly find 5, 10, 20 different opportunities where a connected or connected refrigeration offers real value. Okay? So every, like, and every piece of technology leads to another. There's just these sort of movements in technology. So someone will bring out a connected a sensor for checking, let me know I'm snoring in the middle of the night. I, I, one of our marketing people mentioned this to me the other day. And that sounds like just a stupid use case. Right now, my wife may think otherwise, but all that is is audio detection then alerting. So the same technology can be used to monitor for break-ins. It can be used to monitor for flat wheel on railway locomotives, which is a massive industry problem. But if you can listen for a certain sound and react to that sound, that is a fantastic use of technology to a lot of people. Snoring, maybe not so much. As I said, maybe my wife would have a different view on that. But sometimes technologies are invented and created for one thing, and then you find them in a completely different area, and that's where the value is. So I would never write off an individual piece of technology. It just, just hasn't found the right home yet. As you guys look ahead, you know, we've picked on the we've picked on the industry here a little bit. Poor refrigerators, you know. This is one that I hear a lot. The connected refrigerator, sort of the pets.com of this uh, of the, out of this moment in this industry. Who out there in IoT land do you think's doing a great job? Not enough people are talking about them. You know, Davra's a fan, Paul's a fan. Give me a name or two of people that you look at and you say these guys are doing it right. Yeah. Uh, look, I love this question, Ryan. I've heard you ask this quite a few times, and everybody tends to come up with real cool and trendy companies no one's ever heard of. I think Alistair from Wild talked about IoT for bees, some Brazilian company, and I know that's, that's great stuff. And Daniel and Talia talked about the Aura Ring, and yeah, great. These startups doing fantastic things no one's ever thought about before, and I wish them all the best success. But maybe I'm just a, a bit of a champion of the old guys, like. There are a lot of older companies out there doing really smart things with IoT. John Deere, Harley Davidson, Kona, the elevator people. They're, they're doing really smart things and really embracing technology. But we have a, a favorite, we have a partner we do some business with, um, a company called Onset Computing out of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. 
small family-run business. They're around 40-odd years. I think their claim to fame is they reduced or released one of the world's first uh, sub-$100 temperature sensors back in like 1990 or something like that. And these are, it was a big thing at the time, okay? So they make sensors, they make uh, water monitoring, they make air uh, air pollution monitoring systems, they make, they're big in agriculture, very big in cold chain monitoring. Good American company. Everything is made in Cape Cod. Like it's American made. It's 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 good quality product. I would highly recommend anyone out there who's looking for sensors to look at any element of data collection, data logging, data management. Go go look at Onset Computing. They're they're good people. It's quality product, and yeah, we, we just like them. Yeah. Like we always like to see them involved in projects because we know the technology will just work. Well, all right. Speaking of great companies that we always love to see involved in projects. Let's close with Davra. What's coming down the pipe for you guys? You know, so we're, as we sit here now, we're second half of 2022. What might the audience expect to see as the the years roll on for you guys? What are you excited about? Look, I suppose it's a cliche to say that data analytics is the the next evolution of IoT, but it's how people use their data. And we're, we're definitely seeing more and more of our clients moving from that first phase of connecting assets and collecting data from them, we're really seeing them start to move to doing really smart things with it. Cameras are probably the king of all sensors, and that's we're seeing a lot around video analysis. Um, we're using it in projects, like we're using video for, for monitoring for uh, uh, landslides in sort of the Nordic countries. We're doing, we're actually using space. Okay, we, we, we have a lot of big relation with the European Space Agency. We use satellite video data. So that, that's a big evolution for us. I would suggest to most people that probably 80 to 90% of companies using some element of IoT technology will be using video by, I'm going to say next year. I actually think it'll be, it'll be sooner than that. Video is absolutely the rising star of IoT right now. It's becoming involved in more and more projects. And I just see that just getting more and more. I think certainly any new cameras arriving on the scene will have an element of, of analytics within them. And any projects we're involved in tend to have video involved today. So it's a big area for us, big focus area. We have a big team around data, around video analytics. And to me, that's, that is the future of IoT. A lot of things will be replaced by just smart video cameras. Yeah, I see it the same way. And we definitely wish you guys well. Paul, Commodore salesman turned Davra CEO. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation. Talk to you soon. And thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet another IoT executive to discuss what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.